The Guardian. I'm John Plunkett, and coming up on this week's Media Talk, after 40 days of hearings, phase one of the Leveson inquiry comes to a close. Is it only 40 days? We bring you full analysis of all the week's evidence. Plus, News International settles another 16 phone-hacking cases for a not insignificant sum. And we'll be finding out why it's no longer OK to RT at Sky and the BBC after the two news organisations tweaked their Twittering policies. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. Well, hello, everyone. It's a packed show we have in store for you this week. Ollie Mann and Vicky Frost will join us a little later to talk about Twitter and TV. But first up, we catch up with all things Leveson and the phone-hacking scandal. They're the specialist subjects, of course, of Mr. Dan Saber, the Guardian's Head of Media and Technology. Dan, as ever, it's been another busy old week. Oh my, hasn't it been a busy week? We've had Paul Dacre on not once, but twice, and, and, and plenty of other things besides. Like the proverbial bus. Uh, what, yes. what, did, what did Paul Dacre have to say? He had some harsh words for Hugh Grant this time around. Yeah, yeah, yeah several harsh words for Hugh Grant. There was, uh, well, he did the whole of um, Monday afternoon, sort of, so he had, we had sort of three, four hours of Paul Dacre, sort of more than any other editor. Uh, I mean, not necessarily a bad thing, uh, partly, as Michael White wrote in The Guardian, you know, Paul Dacre is the Alex Ferguson and a Fleet Street. So his stature, if you like, suggests that he should, you know, deserves a long period of time and there's not really an owner leaning on him. But it was interesting that he was the one who got the sort of toughest questioning, really, and the widest range of questioning he was asked about whether sort of turning on the light at night caused you cancer, which is, I think, per a Daily Mail report. One shouldn't take these things too seriously. And asked an awful lot about Hugh Grant and the never-ending mendacious smears around, so much so that he was called back for a second helping uh, uh, on Thursday, uh, at the end of Thursday, where he was hectored by Hugh Grant's counsel, David Sherbourne, and we eventually learned, after lots of arguing and not much illumination, that Paul Dacre wasn't going to withdraw Associated Newspapers' assertion that Hugh Grant had sort of hit his company with his mendacious smears, as he called them, that is to say, and made some um, allegation that there might, might have been phone hacking responsible for the provenance of a particular story about a plummy-voiced executive that Hugh was having these late-night phone calls with. And, um, uh, and so as a result of that, I think we were in that respect not much the wiser. Do you think it's going to run and run, or is it a, an entertaining sideshow that's sort of come to an end? We shouldn't get too uh, preoccupied by this. We certainly shouldn't get preoccupied by that. There was much more important stuff at Leveson, I think. Well, uh, talking uh, of which, well, let's I, move on to um, Heather Mills was up this week too. <laughs> <laughs> is that a good? Is that a non sequitur? Heather Mills. Heather Mills kept us all royally entertained and was actually more quite interesting about the whole subject of Piers Morgan and obviously, uh, famously, Piers Morgan has heard and wrote about this. Uh, God, years ago as well, because um, Leveson doesn't seem to explore anything new. It felt it feels like when you hear these sort of controversies being aired. But anyway, Heather Mills, there she was, saying that she had never played any of her voicemail messages to Piers Morgan. Uh, not that Piers said that she had, but kind of made us think that she might have done. Uh, this is obviously the message where Paul McCartney, they did a big row, and Paul McCartney had left her a message singing as only Paul McCartney can. We can work it out on her, on her answer phone. And um, anyway... She didn't, Piers, didn't, she didn't give Piers Morgan permission to, uh, or she didn't play that message to him with her consent. Any suggestion uh, Leveson might take this seriously enough to uh, invite Morgan back, or is this one a closed I chapter hope, as well? Oh, my, I hope not. <laughs> Look, <laughs> let, let's think about some other things that before the judge this week. I think we had a very interesting, if surprising bit of testimony, and I must pick my words carefully here, uh, from Ian Edmondson, who's been arrested on suspicion of phone hacking. He's the former News of the World news editor. Exactly yeah. so. And he was talking about the whole run-up to the publication, the controversial publication of Kate McCann's diaries in, I think, September of 2008. And that was where 
they bought these. Kate McCann had kept a diary shortly after the disappearance of Madeleine. It had come into the Portuguese police had got it. They're translating the Portuguese in pursuit of evidence. And uh, anyway, the news of the world had bought and retranslated the Portuguese diaries. And Colin Myler, the editor, the editor then of the News of the World, had told the Inquirer in December that he had asked Ian Emerson to go off and ring their PRs, tell them what was coming, and. Um, and get their consent and of course actually what was a week later there was an almighty round Kate McCann said she felt mentally raped and they hadn't got the consent and the news world had to apologise but what Ian Edmondson said this week was that what Colin Myler had told the Leveson Inquiry on oath no less well he gave it he contradicted Myler's <coughs> version of events and he said he was ordered by Myler to give the McCann's PR man Clarence Mitchell the most woolly his words account of events so that they had a vague idea what was coming up, but not the real idea, so that they wouldn't take action in Edmondson's words, i.e. seek an injunction, uh, and that Clarence Mitchell could be blamed for the ensuing mess. And that's an interesting piece of evidence, not least because Colin Meyer has now been appointed to be editor of the New York Daily News, so he might have a question to answer. Well, this was the end of Module 1 for Leveson. Uh, hard to draw conclusions from a, from a 40-day inquiry so far, but... Uh, uh, you know, what, what is your impressions looking back now as we enter into a two-week break? Uh, I think we're all very excited about the break. We, we, there's a lot more to go. We've got the press and police, Module 2, the press and politicians, maybe David Cameron, Tony Blair, Module 3, all sorts of excitements to come. I think what what Leveson's really tried to do is assert, uh, above all, prima facie, there's a sort of there's a problem. P- ordinary people in particular, but people who are in the public eye, people who are in have reason to be covered by the press, often feel... Uh, poorly treated by it there are problems about accuracy about harassment by photographers and by journalists about corrections about sort of mediation and you know and the McCann went to the McCann's in particular sort of case study and that and how they were sort of vilified by a number of newspapers and then got these you know rather large libel payouts and go to the Madeleine McCann fund so he's established as a problem uh, and he's sort of hinted at solutions uh, like maybe having some kind of libel and privacy tribunal, a low-cost court. We've talked about that, I think, on this show in the past. The need for the PCC, I think, to raise its game. It's not a mediator, and not a regulator, I'm sorry, Leveson frequently says, but maybe to introduce a standards arm and, 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 and regulate. And maybe in a sense that, despite his own quixotic evidence, that Richard Desmond might join the new enlarged club. But there's an awful lot of detail here. And we're, we're some way from, I think, getting a final solution. And there are a lot of wriggly little issues. Um, editors are very divided, for example, by whether there should be statutory underpinning or not. Should there be a Leveson law? Some people think that's just a sort of necessary bit of housekeeping. Others people think it's the beginning of a slippery slope to tighter regulation. You know, you can see some broad sort of ways forward, if you like, but not, not the final answer. It's felt at time that sometimes the uh, the wrong questions or maybe the right questions weren't being asked, but uh, possibly get a sense over the last few days that it had sort of picked up some momentum again. Yeah, actually, it did. I think the inquiry had a good week this week and sort of woke up this week. Uh, uh, one of the things that's quite interesting, I mean, it's not, a, it's not a court, no one's on trial, but they are sort of digging into one or two things as examples of, I think, the culture and practice of the press or whatever it says in the remit. And I think the whole saga around Kate McCann's diary, they've looked at from several directions. They've asked the editor, the news editor, and actually the, the reporter wrote the story. And, it, you know, it's quite clear. A clear picture emerged of a real power and control relationship coming right from the top. 
Uh, and you, I think you've seen a few, few examples of – so that's been an interesting one. And you've just seen a number of those. And I think you've seen yourself in this Paul Dacre versus Hugh Grant battle, if we've learned anything, is, is how unwilling – uh, newspapers or some newspaper editors can be to apologise or back down or meet in the middle if they think it would make life easier. They'd much rather stick to their guns and have a bit of a you know bit of verbal fisticuffs if they can help it. So he's learned a few things about how Fleet Street works through through, through working some things through, and I think that's been worthwhile. Well, from the Royal Courts of Justice to the High Court, briefly, where News International settled on a number of cases, including Steve Coogan and Alistair Campbell this week. Yeah, that's right. 21 more individuals settled, so that takes a total to 58. They've paid out a bit, about a million pounds in damages that we know about, but there's a lot more that weren't disclosed. Chucking costs in, I mean, we're in a little weary on finger in the wind territory, but sort of 10 million pounds plus, maybe 15. Steve Coogan told me he'd spent 400 grand on his lawsuit so that's something that news international have to have to meet and then just as those cases uh, uh this wave of cases settles we're hearing about another 50 55 56 coming forward peter crouch and abby clancy my favorite james blunt uh, the wonderful james blunt so a whole lot of people sort of coming forward so uh, uh, clearly what's going to happen is that these will get the, the fresher cases will get expedited and they'll get their sort of 20 or 40 grand which, you know it seems to be sort of tens of thousands generally seeming to be the tariff but it's going to go on there were 829 phone hacking victims um sue acres told us this week a little bit up from the 803 before that's 829 they can identify for sure so uh, they've paid out to 58, I think, did I say? And there's another 56, I think, coming down the track near term and probably another 700 and something after that. Uh, now, disappointment's probably the wrong word, but is there a sort of sense of um, anticlimax when these cases are settled before we actually hear them in forensic detail? I mean, you can't accuse Steve Coogan of um, you know, not pursuing it with the necessary vigour, but uh, you know, eventually are we going to hear one of these cases actually sort of in, in court in, you know, in every sort of um, you know, spit and cough? A very good question. There's, only, there's one case that could come to trial which hasn't settled, is Charlotte Church, who appears to be, her and her family appear to be mighty cross. Um, uh, maybe that's because she, she turned out 100 grand to sing at Rupert Murdoch, sing P.A. Yeso at Rupert Murdoch's wedding in 1999. But uh, 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 she seems mighty cross. Uh, one suspects that case and every case will settle. What's important here is that whereas in the, in the old days these cases would have settled confidentially in a sealed box, what's happening now is two things happening. One of them is that the, the, the evidence is not being sealed up, so it's not a confidential settlement, and that um, if any more evidence comes to light, you know, if you're an to Campbell and they found that they've hacked you more than they thought, as he said, when I was in number 10 or not, I'd quite like to know, uh, 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 then they could be liable for more damages. So um, what's happening to the evidence, though, is there's not unfortunately being sort of um, uh, pinned up on a notice board where we can all sort of look at it and, and goggle, but instead it is engaged in the rather more practical and useful task of um, uh, going to the police for their criminal inquiries, uh, the people being charged, we may well have trials, and it's also going to, dare I say this, John Levison Part 2, hurrah, Woo-hoo. which will be the truth and reconciliation moment where we will look over what... You know, we will learn everything that happened about phone hacking, uh, and that will happen when all the trials are finished. So, I think you know, Steve Coogan was saying, uh, not unreasonably, I think uh, uh, the evidence will, will all come out, and I think we do at some point really do need to know what what happened. But the civil cases, it's not the way to do it now. Okay, Dan, thanks very much. You can read plenty more about all this as ever on MediaGuardian.co.uk. 
Now, it doesn't take much to send the Twittersphere into a tiz, but that's exactly what happened this week when a leaked email from Sky News revealed the organisation's new approach to social media, and it ended up on Media Guardian. Here to explain more is occasional webpoint to ologist Ollie Mann, one half of the Answer Me This podcast. Hi nice. there, Ollie. Webpoint to what? Two point ologist. Ologist. Is Good. that right? Do you, is that I on like your it. Yeah, they used to on Steve right in the afternoon. They used to call us webheads. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Which and I think yours is a much more it's a much more mature phrase. Well, if we can ace Steve right in the afternoon, that can, can only be that can only be a good thing. Never. Um, now, Ollie, tell me about this new social media policy at Sky. It's all to do with uh, breaking news or otherwise on Twitter. Yeah, well, basically, they've said that Sky News reporters are only allowed to tweet about things in their area of expertise, uh, and also that they're not allowed, crucially, to retweet. Uh, so, if someone tweets a story that is relevant to their subject area, they're not allowed to retweet it. They presumably have to paraphrase it. So they can only tweet about their sort of uh, area of knowledge, and also, and you retweet other Sky News people. Yes, although I mean, so it's a bit of a close. It's like a walled. They're sort of, sort of walling, closing themselves in. It's kind of a walled garden. Well, kind of. I mean, you sort of think this is a broad rule, but in reality, take someone like Eamon Holmes. If someone's tweeting Please. him, <laughs> if someone's tweeting him saying, "Oh, you know, nice suit you're wearing today, Eamon," it's hardly going to ruffle feathers at News Corp if he retweets that, is it? I think this is just a kind of general rule of don't retweet other people's breaking news sources we want to create the impression that sky news is breaking the news and that kind of makes sense you know if i was a, a cabinet politician and i tweeted uh you know uh, at thursday lunchtime i will be making a statement to the press um you know if sky news put rt at the ollie man at thursday lunchtime i'll be making a statement to the press everyone who then retweeted that would be retweeting me not Sky News. And this is kind of a technical point, but if Sky News instead put, uh, according to at the Ollie Man's Twitter feed, he will be making a statement at lunchtime, then everyone who retweets that will be retweeting Sky News, and it's a way of getting their brand out there as a, a bastion of breaking news, which is what they do. So I think it's quite clever, really. Ollie, I absolutely follow what you're saying. But, um, <laughs> doesn't, isn't it spoiling the fun of Twitter a bit? I mean, it's a bit of a free-for-all, isn't it? You know, if we want to tweet what we like, if we want to retweet who we like, then, uh, you know, I mean, it's a bit of fun as long as, uh, long as you don't get yourself uh, or your company into, uh, you know, into sort of reputational corporate issues yeah sort of i mean i think it's um really nice that for example celebrities are theoretically on a meritocratic platform with joe from down the pub but in truth it's not like that and it's not like that for professional broadcasters either that horse has bolted it might be nice for their star reporters to have a chat with joe from down the pub but they do have to be responsible and think about how it's coming across because you know as we saw with fabio capella's uh, fabio capello's resignation uh the first five minutes of the bulletin was just talking about what people are saying on Twitter as if it's an official press statement in the old days uh, and you've, you know you've got to be really really careful with that I and mean, actually it was really interesting uh, I happened to be uh, in the newsroom at TV Centre uh, on the night that uh, Robert Peston was breaking the story that Stephen Hester was not going to be taking his bonus yeah yeah and Peston had tweeted this about seven minutes before the news at 10 uh, okay, and this ruffle feathers? Uh, well, what happened is... Because uh, we should say here that the BBC have changed their policy too and now they're telling all their journalists to uh, to sort of get in touch with the the mothership and tell their editors before they send it out on Twitter. That's well, a bit context here. So anyway, well, carry on. No, well, I bet they have because, yeah, what happened then uh, mysteriously is uh, Sky News tweeted about two minutes before the news at 10, Sky sources, Stephen Hester will not be taking his bonus. Uh, now, we can only presume, but uh, you might expect that those Sky sources were nothing more than a savvy Sky News producer looking at Robert Peston's tweet. Indeed. Um, and that seemed to uh, anger some people in the BBC newsroom. Um, and they had a bit of a kind of fun argy-bargy about that on Twitter between the uh, BBC news editor and the, and the Sky news editor. But it does kind of underline the issue. 
big journalist like Peston, he's got an exclusive on the news at 10. Should he be tweeting about it at all before the news at 10? If he is going to be tweeting about it, shouldn't he make sure that all those tweets lead back to the BBC? And that's what Sky News are doing. They're making sure that every news story that comes from their reporters links back to them. Yeah, I think you're right. I think when it's an exclusive, then uh, kind of all, all tweets are off, as it were, until you break it on the main platform. So, yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Right, moving on now, and away from Sky, some mixed news this week at Virgin Media. Richard Branson's company posted its first ever annual profits this week. In fact, uh, I tell you what, not only is it Virgin Media's first annual profits, uh, Ollie, but it's the first time the cable business in the UK in nearly 30 years has ever made money. So mm. let's get the poppers out. Yeah. Party poppers, <laughs> actually, <to do> <laughs> just to be clear. Um, <laughs> uh, I think... This is actually great news when you think back to the disaster that was NTL and Telewest and... Uh, Digging up the pavements, all those kind of yeah. 80s and 90s stories of the cable industry. I mean, they were, their brands were so off, you know, it wasn't a cool thing to have a cable box. And Virgin have turned that around. Uh, so, yes, I think, you know, quite impressive that they managed to do that. And it isn't just about branding. It is that they do now provide a genuinely competitive service with Sky. I know that there's Talk Talk and BT and all these other people, but really it is a two-horse race now between Virgin and Sky. That's a real achievement by them. And I can't think of anyone nicer I'd like to see make a profit than, uh, than Richard Branson. <laughs> Although it was, uh, it was about 100 million, 70, 80 million, I think was their profit. And so it's a sort of, it's tiny compared to their uh, overall revenue, which is something like 3 billion, but it's a start. It is. And also the clever thing, I think, is that with the promotion of TiVo in the UK, they've really managed to get people excited about the premium service. Which this is, is TiVo, they, this is their video-on-demand service. Right, which is where they, it's their Sky Plus, basically, which is where they're going to be making the most profit. You can charge more per month for people to be renting that box than any other box, and that's the one that people are going for rather than the basic package, then that's a more sustainable model as well. But not everyone was celebrating, because there's been a lot of criticism this week about them put, about Virgin Media putting up their prices. Mm. Uh, TiVo's going up from three quid, I read here, to five pound a month. And uh, previously said that it was going to double broadband speeds, but at no extra cost. But it turns out maybe that wasn't quite right. <laughs> yeah. Well, people are saying this is disingenuous because they've had a letter from Virgin saying, congratulations, we're doubling your broadband speed. And then they read on Digital Spy that actually that means, uh, uh, well, actually at the same time what's happening is, is that their bill is going up by, by £25 a year. Um, but the thing is, if you don't take the TV service, then you're not paying extra for your broadband. So technically, it is, you know, a free thing that they are doubling speeds. I think people are getting their knickers in a twist, really, about what is quite a small increase. Uh, £2.68 per month is the average increase for someone who is paying for a premium service. Um, but then I should, I, I have to declare an interest here, which is uh, I do make a uh, podcast internally for Virgin Media employees evangelising about how wonderful their products are. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so, in-house Virgin Media podcast. Yeah, so that's not too... Uh, you know, I think I can available be, as a guest. Carry I, on. Yes, I think I can be editorially objective about the quality of their products, but on the other hand, I do get a subsidised Virgin box myself. So it's quite hard for me to imagine what I'd feel like if I had to pay an extra two quid when I, when I don't pay full price at the moment. Is but, it an expensive podcast? Is some of this uh, price rise going to to pay for that? Uh, no comment. Right. <laughs> Negotiations are ongoing. Good to hear. But, I mean, as we got, you got Love Film came over here, seeing lots of TV ads for Netflix, of course, and, yeah. and Sky rolling out their own kind of standalone streaming service. Uh, finally, uh, cable makes a profit uh, and i don't want to be too much of a doom monger here but you know is it uh, is it almost making money at a time when you know things are moving on now we're moving on from cable and satellite and everyone's going to be streaming in a couple of years time well the, the the clever thing about what they've done and the fact that they're based on fiber optics is that you can stream now renting films from FilmFlex, uh, and from they've got another service that's called something like dairy box was called picture box uh, which is the sort of dairy budget box. Version. i subscribe to dairy <laughs> <laughs> uh, so which is the kind of budget film option so they've got that covered and i think you know like apple with itunes where people are prepared to spend 
spend a bit more renting a film through them than through other online services because it's so convenient and because their computer is already configured to all that in the same way once they've got you subscribing every month and you're used to the convenience of it and everything's integrated uh, i do think that actually people it, it doesn't matter if FilmFlex makes it a bit cheaper even though probably FilmFlex will end up on their platform as well you're going to carry on using the platform you know because it's so easy it's just a couple of clicks away just a couple of clicks away yeah i mean i'm still watching dvd box sets but what i want to do is get my ipad perhaps you can tell me about this later <laughs> get my ipad to talk to my tv set this is what i need to do how hard can it be uh i do have some tips for you but Marvelous. i think we might be getting into quite dry territory so, if I go into <laughs> media talk spin-off there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we'll get a room afterwards and uh, all right well thanks very much for that ollie you're staying with us but we're going to be joined now by the guardian's tv editor vicky frost for the final part of the show <laughs> Hi there, Vicky. Hello. We'll start off, uh, Vicky Bow, with a bit of news. Mark Thompson, BBC Director General, admitted he's got it wrong on women. What's going on? Well, about time. He seems to have been denying it, just saying, no, there's not a problem, no, there's not a problem. This is older women yes, on TV. Yes, there is a problem. Yes, there is a problem. There aren't enough older women on TV. And there just undeniably are not enough older women on TV. They seem to get booted off in favour of younger women who sit there with older men. And it's just a problem... Beyond the BBC, to be honest, it's a problem across all of TV. But the BBC, being a public service broadcaster, I think does have to take a lead in rectifying that rather than just sort of saying, well, everyone does it, so it's fine. You suggested it's been a long time coming. It has been a, uh, over a year since Miriam O'Reilly won her landmark tribunal claim against the BBC, which is the former countryfile presenter, yep. of course. Um, I wonder why he's doing it now. I mean, he's, he's got a meeting coming up soon with some, a couple of MPs to discuss the issue. Well, there was also that report, wasn't there, quite recently, uh, sort of the end of last month, that sort of took the BBC to task, sort of saying there are, there are no women on Mock the Week and lots of other things. I mean, actually, Mock the Week, I remember I was watching it once and there was I was watching the best of Mock the Week or something, and God knows why I was doing that. Is Kill it th- me three now. Minute, three minutes long. I know. <laughs> and um, there was literally one woman on it for the whole half an hour. And I like tweeted them. I sort of tweeted that saying, this is outrageous. And someone from Mock the Week tweeted me back going, no, it's not. There was a woman. So it's like, you know, come on, at least admit you've got a problem because you totally have. I think the extraordinary thing about Mock the Week, if you compare, think about Loose Women, right? That's a show for women hosted by women. There's always at least one man on every day. I reckon there's a ratio of more men on Loose Women than there are women on Mock the Week, which isn't (laughs) even professed to be a program by men for men. Um, But I suppose uh, the thing about that example, though, is quite a confrontational show, isn't it? I know this is a stereotype, but I do think that's quite a masculine environment. It's all about outdoing each other and competing to be funniest. Maybe that particular programme is unfair to single out, because actually that is an environment that even really good female comics do struggle in for that reason. But, I mean, the problem there is that that format isn't even funny. I mean, it's very confrontational, and that, in a lot of ways, I think, is its weakness. Because you just get men basically shouting over each other, trying to be funniest almost always not being funny at all almost quite literally willy waving quite literally yes almost quite literally i don't know if that even is a thing but um. (laughs) (laughs) but thompson says he's going to put more in on screen and uh one of the women he's flagged up uh as getting two new primetime shows is none other than former treasure hunt hostess annika rice does that fill you with excitement ollie i just groaned inside i'm afraid only because she's had her chance hasn't she she had an itv comeback a few years ago and it wasn't very good uh, Surely I do remember that ITV comeback, yes. It was a bit it was a bit rubbish. 
So was it Annika's, Annika comes to the rescue or something along those lines? No, it was her and I believe Andy Peters doing a cookery-related daytime show. I mean, as I say, it sounds like something Charlie Brooker made up, but it did really happen. <laughs> well, I'm guessing that won't be the format she brings to BBC One. Uh, but Vicky, I mean, it's 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 a I'm female pleased. face, isn't it? So you're pleased. I'm pleased because Annika Rice is uh, is the voice. Is she is the presenter of my childhood? I love her. I loved Treasure Hunt. It was my favourite thing ever. I used to love Challenge Annika. It was just. I just adored her. So Jump was a format way ahead of its time, wasn't it? It was. It was amazing. Bring that back with Annika, I say. I think they did, didn't they? It didn't really work. Oh, really? <laughs> it didn't really work, yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, one BBC show in which there's no shortage of successful women, or at least one, I think, is Borgen, which uh, came to an end last week, Vicky. A triumphant finish, I hear. It was actually the last. The last double bill was really fantastic television. I thought, um, and I and, and I'm very surprised. I'm very pleased at how well it did do on BBC Four because obviously it sort of came off the back of the Killing Two, which had very good ratings. And then I think everyone wondered whether you know you'd sort of have people watch for the first two weeks, and then they'd go, oh, "Hold on, actually, do I want to watch two hours of Danish coalition politics every week? Perhaps not." And it would then drop, but that didn't happen. Uh, which was fascinating, and the blog, our, our blog, has been busier even than our killing blog. So it's, it's out killing the killing. It is out killing the killing. So, so it's it's sort of been fascinating actually in terms of kind of really showing that people are very prepared to watch kind of quite hard to watch, difficult things you need to really concentrate on and really embrace them. It's uh, yeah, it's been very good indeed. In Danish. In Danish, yes. But what's going to happen? Are, are there more Danish TV shows in the pipeline? I mean, is, is, there, is this a sort of a trend that's here to stay? Um, well, there's The Bridge coming on BBC4, which is a Swedish-Danish detective co-production, which sounds like Sarah Lund is going to meet Volander in the middle of the bridge between Sweden and Denmark. And, yeah, I'm you still know, with you. I kind of, I, I sort of, you know... It, it's sort of like going to be amazing, but obviously that isn't what happens. But I still, it's still meant no to be very good. Yeah, no spoilers. Doesn't involve Sarah Lund and Volander together. I wonder if any other broadcasts are going to try and muscle in on this, Ollie. A BBC Four being given sort of a clear run at uh, you know Danish TV. Well, you'd think Sky Arts would be knocking right on there the door. Waiting. Yeah, although actually, you know, we should thank Sky for this particular trend because it's because they bought up all of the American stuff that the BBC had to be inventive about what they could afford to buy. Um, and so maybe if uh, you know Sky creates Sky Danish or whatever Sky Scandinavia, maybe the BBC will have to start looking to Poland or something. <laughs> well, interestingly, actually, ITV3 are the next channel to buy a uh, what a Danish import, a structured reality Danish <laughs> docu The only way is Aarhus. Oh, yes, I like it. Viking sure. <laughs> um, Tell us more. Vic. It's called Those Who Kill, um, and it's so it's another crime drama. It's also got another strong female detective sort of leading it, um, but. I don't much like it, to be quite honest. I just because it's, it's an ITV, or um, well, I'm kidding. It, it, the thing is, it sort of it sort of fits quite nicely, I think, on ITV3 in lots of ways. But um, it's for me, it's just far too violent, and it's quite quite a lot of sort of uh, deduction that makes no sense whatsoever. Just people going, "Oh yes, this must be the answer. I can go and save you in the nick of time." And it, it's certainly not what we've seen. Uh, before, in, I mean, it's not made by uh, the same people who made The Killing and Borgen, and I think you can see the difference in it. Uh, other people might like it, not my cup of tea. They've jumped on the bandwagon, but the wheel's fallen off. Uh, it, to me, yes, yes, right, that's okay. the case. 
Well, also this week, we saw the return of the 10 o'clock live to Channel 4. Now, Ollie, I seem to remember this was one of your great disappointments of 2011, the it first was, series. Well, in the context of media talk, yeah. Well, in the context of media <laughs> talk, yeah. That was other. the worst thing that happened to me all year, sort of slightly disappointing Charlie Brooker vehicle. <laughs> other, other things were going on. Um, other things were going on, but yeah. But what did you make of its return this well, week? It, it was one of my disappointments of last year because I thought it should be much better, because I do think we really, really need a show like this. At, you know, political times like this, during the recession, with that stellar line of cast, it should be good. And I'm pleased to say it is much better, isn't it, don't you think? Yes, I thought it was about a million times better than when it first launched last night. Although I I sort of found uh, the beard. Um, David... Um... Explain yourself. <laughs> this is the, the Alcatada sketch you didn't like. No, 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 not that. I just find um, David Thingy's beard... Oh, David Mitchell's actual David beard. David Mitchell's actual beard, very distracting, because it sort of looks like someone's drawn it onto him, I think, very well, oddly. If that's the worst thing you can say, then their strides ahead of where they were before is much better at 45 minutes is much better not up against question time I think it doesn't matter that it's up against news night so much because it is a comedy show and it's much better that they only have two kind of proper guests rather than you know they used to have three or four didn't they used to go on a bit too long now it's much more them talking to each other it's more clear that Lauren's the presenter rather than trying to be a comedian which was always uncomfortable because she's not a comedian you know she now introduces the show and kind of is the David Dimbleby I suppose to the three boys who are larking around which is quite nice and fun I thought it was just much better the thing that I thought it was lacking though uh, if you think back to the 11 o'clock show, which really was a pile of shite, but did have uh, Ali and G. Occasional gym. Yeah. <laughs> did have Ali G, did have Ricky Gervais, uh, or the, the show that Dennis Pennis was launched, I forget what it was called now, the Sunday show or whatever. Those kinds of shows. What they usually are good at is launching new talent in little VT sketches. And I do think... Yes, it's great to have those four, you know, very well-regarded, funny people on one show, but it would be nice to have some new talent coming through as well, doing something a bit more experimental and maybe, dare I say, some real people on it who aren't politicians, who aren't comedians. Um, I think you're really right, actually. I mean, I did, I don't know, I thought they needed maybe another guest last night because really, Alistair Campbell, I was kind of like, it it felt like he was just sort of slightly refusing to go towards the end of the show. It was very (laughs) odd. It was a bit like, leave now, come on. (laughs) But, um, But yes, you're right. I think if they could kind of find that right sort of way of inserting those little VCs and it also it kind of just changed the pace a little bit as well, well I think just, they haven't got a breakout star yeah. you know they've poached stars from other shows you know David Mitchell's from Peep Show Charlie Brooke has done stuff on BBC4 we've seen them all do things before and I think what would be great is if they had a bit of talent that was theirs there was oh yeah the guy from 10 o'clock live at the moment it just feels like they've thrown a lot of money at it but they have thrown a lot of money at it they've got a lot of writers and it is much better yes it is much better and Lauren Laverne is much much better she does she does just make more sense within the whole thing, which was, and that was, I thought, the most frustrating thing about it first time around, that you had this brilliant female presenter and she just was totally miscast. So, mm-hmm. yeah, much better. And that, my friends, all of you, is it for this week. My thanks in no particular order to Ollie Mann, Vicky Frost and Dan Saber for keeping me company. You can leave your feedback on anything and indeed everything you've heard on the Media Talk blog or our Facebook wall. I'm John Plunkett and Media Talk is produced by Ben Green. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.